Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm the third revelation, and with me is is our managing editor, Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. <laughs> Today we'll be talking about There Will Be Blood. Uh, the film is currently on Netflix. It's a favorite of, of both mine and Adam's, and uh, we asked y'all to vote uh, on what film we should discuss this week, and y'all chose There Will Be Blood, so we are happy to discuss that film. Obviously, the, there will be spoilers. Uh, the film came out in 2007, so if you haven't seen it yet, stop listening, watch the damn thing, and then get back to us. We're going to talk about the themes. We're going to talk about where it falls into Paul Thomas Anderson's career, a uh, whole bunch of stuff. But uh, first off, I was kind of curious, Adam, uh, what, were, what were your thoughts upon revisiting the film recently? Uh, I liked it a lot. I mean, I think even, so it's interesting because this film is like intrinsically tied to No Country for Old Men. They came out the same year. They were up for the same Oscars. Um, they both kind of deal with some similar themes. Um, both have like iconic performances. And I remember like very specifically that year, I did not really get No Country for Old Men, but I really got There Will Be Blood. And so I was super in the bag for There Will Be Blood. I eventually came around and saw the light that No Country for Old Men is a masterpiece. Um, and, uh, but it had been a long time since I had revisited There Will Be Blood just because it's, in my mind, it was just such a heavy movie. Um, it's not really like, you know, Saturday afternoon fun watching, <laughs> but I think it is. Well, like, that's, that's what I'm gonna, uh, that's what I was about to say is like when I revisited it, I was like, this movie's really funny. And now, kind of knowing, I mean, we'll talk about Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography later, but you look at films like Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread, both of which are very funny, and you start to see that like the aesthetic can kind of lure you into thinking that you're supposed to be like, oh, down in the muck, and this is very serious. But I don't think Paul Thomas Anderson is a filmmaker who takes himself that seriously. Um, I just think he's really good with aesthetics, and he's really good with uh, cinema and how he's telling a story. But, you know, there are things that are funny, and it's okay to laugh. But I think that, you know, when I first saw it, I didn't necessarily understand that those things were supposed to be funny. Um, uh, even the milkshake thing, I don't think I understood that that was supposed to be funny, that it was okay to laugh. Again, because you have this kind of uh, sheen of prestige over the whole film. Um but yeah, I, you know, I really loved it. I thought that it, I think it holds up tremendously well. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's one of the greatest films of the 21st century. Um, you know, thematically, obviously, it's incredible. Uh, the performances are incredible. The filmmaking is incredible. But it's funny. Like, it's a it's not a joyless film. It's uh, there will be blood is far funnier and far more joyful than Batman versus Superman, which is about comic book characters. So I'll say that, and I'll say goodbye, all of our listeners. Bye. They all left. Oh, no. You look like a fool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so my experience with There Will Be Blood is the first time I saw it, I was kind of like, I don't know what to make of this. And part of that was, in, uh, it's, it's hard to say, it's, it's kind of a baffling decision, but on rewatches it works. But if the, on the very first viewing, 
I don't know about you. I was very confused about Eli and Paul Sunday. Yeah. Because and the film purposely keeps you in the dark because Daniel is in the dark. He doesn't know, like, did I just get conned by this guy? <laughs> and it takes about halfway through to be like, oh no, no, Paul is a different person. They're twins. And in fact, you know, when they were making the film, they recast the role of Paul. Yeah. Paul was originally a different actor, and then they decided it wasn't working out and decided to cast Paul Dano in both roles, um, which adds a nice sort of symmetry to what's happening. But it, as you're watching the film, you're like, is, who, who is Paul? Who is Eli? And, it, <laughs> and it's not until the film, like, no, 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 they're different people that you can kind of like get back into it. But the film is, it, it feels very dense on its first viewing. But like you said, once you know it's beat, it moves very fast and like it's, it's incredibly entertaining. Um, and, but it does, it does sort of start you out like in a very somber way. I mean, that, that Johnny Greenwood score is, is amazing. I love it, but it's also very unnerving. It's that sort of the, the way it uses strings to create this sense of unease. The film, I think like the first 10 or 12 minutes, maybe it's 15 minutes. I, I clocked minutes, it. No dialogue. Yeah. No dialogue in the first 15 <laughs> minutes. So it's a film, you're like, it's per, like it's making these very strong choices. But once you understand the rhythm of the film and where it's going, it just gets better with each viewing. And I, I feel now confident in saying, like, this is one of my all-time favorite movies. Like, every time, it's a film I think about, like, in between viewings. It's a film that this kind of gets under my skin. And I think there's a lot going on with it. But I just also, I enjoy watching it. It is a pleasurable experience. Just <laughs> it is just to have the movie on, just to watch. Like like when we were talking about the Dark Knight and just how much how good Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker was, I could say the same thing about Daniel Day Lewis as Daniel Plainview. I just think that performance, you just want to like swim in it. It's so luxurious. Like that opening monologue he has, like, "Ladies and gentlemen, I am an oil man." Like I mean, yeah. it's, obviously Daniel Day Lewis is one of the greatest actors who's ever lived. Like to the point now where like that's the joke. Like yeah. Daniel Day Lewis can play anyone and do anything. But this is like in a career of great performances, this might be my favorite performance from him. Yeah, I think I think that's probably correct. Um and it's interesting that he and Paul Thomas Anderson hadn't worked together before this film um, because I do feel like they find some kind of they're just on each other's wavelength like it takes a filmmaker to trust I mean you look at something like Gangs of New York which I don't think is necessarily a great film it is a film that I admire more than most people and I think Daniel Day-Lewis is very good in that movie um, but he's playing you know the the antagonist he's playing Bill the Butcher he's playing the villain this character of Daniel Plainview is much more complex um, and the script doesn't necessarily let on exactly how you're supposed to feel about Daniel Plainview, I don't think. And the choices that Daniel Day-Lewis makes um, in his cadence, in how he's playing certain scenes. I mean, one of the most striking, obviously, is uh, his baptism scene where, you know, he's reluctantly doing it because he'll do anything to get uh, the land rights that he wants. Um but you feel like a little bit of truth when he's yelling, I abandoned my boy, I abandoned my child. But then he's kind of like, move on, give me the blood, give me the blood, <laughs> like, let's get out of here, do the thing that needs to be done. And you just like it, there are these moments where Daniel Day-Lewis lets you in on Daniel Plainview and it's kind of like a door like slightly opens and then slams shut um, where you can kind of kind of get to his true nature. Right. I mean, he's very much a creature of capitalism. Like, that's what he represents, cold, heartless capitalism. But he's not a cipher and he's not a symbol. Like, there's just enough there to tell you who this person is and what he cares about. And that matters because the film 
is you take a character with very little humanity and the film kind of chips away at what little there was left. Like there's a little humanity in how he cares about HW. There's a little humanity in how he's looking to Henry as a brother figure. Uh, there's a little humanity in how he dreams of wealth. The film never overtly states it, but makes it very clear that he was beaten by his father. Mm-hmm. But it never ha- no, at no point does he say, I was beaten as a child. But it lets you know, like, this is where he's coming from. And even, even when, like, H.W. sets the house on fire, <laughs> he doesn't hit H.W. Like, he yeah. doesn't hit his son. When his son hits him, he doesn't hit him back. Like, there are certain lines. Now, obviously, I'm not saying, like, Daniel Plainview, what a great guy. But he has these certain lines that he won't cross because of who he is. And he, gets, he, he tries to hurt people in other ways. But, you know, Eli, he'll smack the shit out of, which is yeah. hilarious. <laughs> well, he's a man of principle. Like, yeah. he, he has a principle in that he, uh, for, whatever reason, made, for whatever reason, has made the decision he's not going to hit his son. Um, but as a man of principle, he feels like capitalism above all things, capitalism above religion. So he will go into this church he will get baptized even though he doesn't necessarily believe it um, and doesn't really care about it because the end goal is uh, more wealth, more money. It's that, you know, that is, I don't think that's, that's him. Cause I, I think some people could say like, well, he's, uh, you know, doing something he doesn't necessarily believe in or um, he's kind of relenting there, but I think that's just him continuing to follow no, his principles. Yeah, no, it's perfect. I mean, it's a completely transactional view of the world. Yeah. And so for him, there's no conflict there about, it's not that he's like, oh, I'm a profound atheist. It's just, he doesn't care. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's for him, religion is really his competitor. And we'll talk more about that. But basically for, if you're looking at where the film is transitioning to from the 19th to the 20th century, you're looking at sort of an agrarian uh, society where religion plays a major part in American life. And he is the future of where oil and industry will play that will basically replace what Americans value. But to do that, he he can't be a religious person because that is that is the old way. And that is sort of uh, it, it also it's it's a competitor. Like I said, I mean, we see it in the film when one of his workers dies and he blames the church because he says, you know, if they weren't here listening to his sermons, they would be getting their rest. And this wouldn't have happened. Well, and he doesn't respect them even before the worker dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eli wants to dedicate the the thing, and just so spiteful, just pulls Eli's Eli's younger sister. Yeah, and like uh, uses some there. of the verbiage that Eli wanted used in the in the dedication, and doesn't let Eli talk. And is like, all right, on with it. Here we go, because uh, he doesn't respect Eli. No, I mean, and then when Eli does his big, you know, song and dance with the, you know, get out of here, ghost. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, you, you know, Daniel stops by and goes, that was one goddamn hell of a show. Yeah. <laughs> like the language he's using is to belittle, you know, what Eli does. Because, and, and, and but by the same token, Daniel does have Eli's number. Eli is a charlatan and Daniel knows it, but it doesn't matter because they're both, in just for them, for those characters, it's about business. And yeah. Eli's business is religion and Daniel's business is oil. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's fascinating to watch that play out uh over the course of the film. You know, I was also just really struck by the stillness of the cinematography. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you Robert know, Elf- right? Yeah, Robert Elswit. I mean, I don't know. I have I have thoughts on this because, <laughs> okay, so Robert Elswit is PTA's longtime cinematographer. Um, has shot a bunch of his films. Uh, Robert Elswit did not shoot Phantom Thread. Uh, Phantom Thread technically doesn't have a cinematographer credit, but Paul Thomas Anderson shot it himself with his crew, but he said he didn't want to take a credit because they're a team and they work whatever. But you look at Phantom Thread and you look at Inherent Vice or you look at There Will Be Blood and you don't really notice a difference. And then you look at other films that Ellswood has shot and some are great and some aren't uh, aren't so wonderful. And I think that's not necessarily uh, to ding Ellswood uh, and his job, um, I think he's probably someone who is at the mercy of the director and what the director wants to do in the director's vision. But I do think there is, uh, I think it's unmistakable that Paul Thomas Anderson is, is very intimately involved in the cinematography of his films. Um, and I know Wills won an Oscar for this film and I think deservedly so. Well, I don't know. I think Deacons, Deacons for no country. No country is probably the, the, the better one but it's more like the shot choices and the decisions like when so when hw comes back from being sent away to the school for the deaf um the camera doesn't follow the camera is very far away it's a it's a wide shot and we pan and watch them kind of walk across and and daniel's trying to hug hw and be like all right everything's fine now we're all back together and, and it's great but there's this kind of removed quality from it that i think is really fascinating um but yeah i I don't know. I, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that Ellswit didn't shoot this movie, but I am saying that I think Paul Thomas Anderson is integral to what his films look like. Because again, you look at Phantom Thread and it does not look super different from the other films, but Robert Ellswit was not involved in that film. Yeah, I would say, I mean, the thing about Paul Thomas Anderson, especially as his career has gone on, is that he has this very, it's not that even his films are, I would qualify them as handsome. Like they're not, they're not that sort of like, it's not like a Wes Anderson thing where everything is symmetrical and immaculate, but it's definitely, they're very ca- carefully calibrated. Mm-hmm. Like you can, you definitely get a sense of like the shot choices have been very carefully chosen. It's not like they shot a ton of coverage and like, you know, PTA figured it out in the editing room. At least that's not the way it looks. It looks like these are the shots that I'm using to convey the ideas within the scene. And I, what I think is so fascinating is that then within, so I also think about the scene in the master when uh, Walking Phoenix is getting that e-meter test essentially. Um, and it's just a still camera. It's a very composed shot, but what's happening within the frame is sometimes chaotic. Mm-hmm. So the performances that Anderson is getting are, you know, he's allowing his actors the freedom to really go places. Whereas you look at a Wes Anderson film and it's like, no, the performances all have to be pitched on the exact same level or else it's, it, this doesn't work. Like you have to hit this line at this mark when your head, when your head is here and you turn this way. Um, that, that's kind of the meticulousness of the framing of Wes Anderson's films. And I think in PTA's films, like the frame itself is meticulously composed, but the performances that are happening, uh, you know, even Eli, when he's performing, uh, you know, he's pulling the arthritis out of that woman, um, you know, the camera itself is still and the camera itself, like the the shot that you're seeing is composed, but the actor is really just using his body and moving around. And, you know, sometimes the camera will, will kind of shake a little bit, trying to kind of like follow the actor. I think that's, I don't know, I think that's really fascinating. I think that's something that Paul Thomas Anderson does really well. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously he's he's an, a, he's I would say we we can say probably one of the best directors working today. I think that's yeah. a safe 
that's a safe thing to say. No, that's not a hot take. Um, <laughs> but I would also say, like, I think he his his skills over, as a director have evolved as well. Yeah. Um, even though I know, like, I know that people like adore Boogie Nights, and I think Boogie Nights is very good. Like, don't get me wrong, but it's not a film that I think like I sort of find myself as wrapped up with as I do There Will Be Blood or Phantom Thread. Yeah. Um, and then there are films of his that like don't totally work for me, like Inherent Vice doesn't totally work for me. Punch Drunk Love doesn't totally work for me. Um, but I, I still admire what he's trying to do within those films. I think it's interesting. There's this podcast called uh, War Starts at Midnight, and they're doing this this series right now called The Man- Magnificent Andersons, where they're going through the filmographies of both PTA and Wes Anderson, um, kind of side by side. Paul W.S. Us Anderson? No, not Paul W.S. Anderson. <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson. Um uh, and I was lucky enough to be on, a guest on their episode on Fantastic Mr. Fox. But uh, at that point, they were discussing kind of how Wes Anderson and Paul Thomas Anderson both have these points in their filmographies where things kind of open up. So for Wes Anderson, uh, my argument was kind of Fantastic Mr. Fox is kind of the Francis Ha of Wes Anderson's filmography in that it, it you know, his previous films are in some ways dealing with similar themes, you know, uh, kind of this woe is me. There's always like a woe is me, Wes Anderson character, but then from, yeah, bad dad from fantastic. Mr. Fox on, uh, Wes Anderson's world kind of opens up and, you know, moonrise kingdom, I think is a really romantic story while still being sad. Uh, and grand Budapest hotel is this, this really meticulously crafted kind of, uh, caper a little bit. Um, and then I think it, in the filmography of Paul Thomas Anderson, you look at Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, and Magnolia. Those are ensemble films. Those have giant casts, and they're—I uh, mean, I don't think Hard Eight is necessarily overlong, but Boogie Nights and Magnolia are probably a little too long. Hard Eight's, uh, a, Hard Eight's a pretty much, a, and I wouldn't say Hard Eight's an ensemble, but it's a—it's a tight little noir. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess you're right. That, uh, that's Eight still is, a Baker Hall's movie for me. Yeah. But Boogie Nights and Magnolia are these kind of like sprawling stories where, you know, the city is a character and uh, it's covering a lot of ground. Um, Punch Drunk Love really zeroes in on two characters. And then from then on, you know, There Will Be Blood is is Daniel and Eli. The master is Joaquin and, and uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Herent Vice is Joaquin Phoenix. Phantom Thread is Daniel Day-Lewis and Vicky Creeps. So it's it's he's kind of from then on is like kind of zeroing in on, on one or two characters specifically um, that he uh, is kind of looking at. And I think honestly he becomes a better filmmaker, like you said. Yeah, no, I think, I also think that like, it's hard to pigeonhole him because I think there are times it's, it's not, obviously he's not like a journeyman director, but at the same time, I would say it's harder to sort of say like, what are the themes that Paul Thomas Anderson keeps returning to? Because I think more than anything, I mean, I think there is sort of, in a broad sense, his films focus on broken, twisted relationships. Um, even, you know, before, I mean, you definitely have that in sort of Punch Drunk Love. But, like, Magnolia is filled with all these broken, twisted relationships, and so is Boogie Nights. Um, but, like, I think as his career goes on, and it, you know, it's it's easier to sort of see, like, how these, you can find... I don't know if toxic is the right word for it, but you have these sort of relationships that are 
both deeply flawed and yet also very beautiful. And I, again, inherent vice is hard to categorize within that. Inherent vice is just its own weird ass thing that I <laughs> don't know Love what it. to do with. I need to revisit it. I just, it's a lot. <laughs> the inherent vice is not caring about the plot. To me, it's just a fun movie. Like it's mm. just kind of a wild ride. It, it's his version of, it's his version of a slapstick comedy. Right. Um, but I have also I've only seen it twice, I think. So and it's been a while since I've seen it. So I would like to revisit it and see if there are themes in there that it kind of went over my head or, or stuff that I wasn't digging deep enough on. Um, but it's profane. I mean, the stuff from Martin Short, I think, is wonderful, but it's a very R-rated affair. Yeah, I, I would also say, but just to, to go back to my point about the, the broken relationships, like you can sort of see it like between Daniel and HR, like the father-son relationship that's broken, the friendship story that's broken between, um, in the master, between those two characters, uh, and then the love story that's very twisted and broken in Phantom Thread, where, you know, just keep poisoning me. <laughs> <laughs> Feed me, my darling. Before I, what did he say something? Before I get sick, kiss me, my darling, before I get sick again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man, that movie is so funny. It's so that. funny. I remember at the screening of that, I was with some friends who are also critics, and we were just cracking up. But other people, in the, like, it was a small press screening. And I don't think the other critics knew, like, oh, this is supposed to be funny. Like, <laughs> it's like a period drama costume piece. And it's like, no, no, yeah. no, it's supposed to be funny. Well, that's the thing. The the aesthetic and even the scores, I think, are are not misleading, but like they lead you to believe this is all to be taken very, very seriously. And like you were saying about there will be blood. I think Johnny Greenwood's score is just, it's kind of violent. Mm. Uh, it's really cutting. Um, Phantom thread is just really lovely and sappy and roped up and, you know, feels like it, it would fit right in with uh, like Joe Wright's pride and prejudice. Um, but it's essentially a, a twisted love story about a woman poisoning her, her lover um, for fun. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the master? I'm sorry, say that again. What are your thoughts on the master? So here's my master story. <laughs> I saw the, the, my first viewing of the master was the worst way to see the master. I saw it at TIFF running off four hours of sleep. I had been up <laughs> till I, like four, four in the morning the previous night writing reviews. I was tired. I, we were sleeping in this kind of crummy hostel. So I was sleeping on basically a, like some plywood and a mat and a very thin mattress. <laughs> I remember the hostel. Yeah. And then it's like now come to the, our 8.30 a.m. screening of The Master. And so I was pretty exhausted. When I revisited it, it's a film that feels like there are some things in it that are really, really good. In the same way that like uh, There Will Be Blood is using um, Upton Sinclair's oil as the springboard for a bigger story about capitalism and uh, you know, religion. And, and, and I think the masters using Scientology is kind of a springboard for stories about love and faith and, and lost men. Um, but I feel like, whereas there will be blood is kind of like an electric current running through it, especially thanks to day Lewis's performance, the master is a bit more unwieldy and it's a bit more, and I think intentionally so, but there are times with it, especially as it gets near the end, like in the, in the final like 20 to 30 minutes or so, where you're really feeling the weight of the film. And it feels like it's kind of meandering away and trying to find a way to, to conclude itself. Whereas There Will Be Blood is just a perfect final scene. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think I feel similarly about the master. Um, my fiance now, girlfriend at the time, hated the master. Um, and I was curious to show her there will be blood. I ended up not. Uh, it didn't work out so that she could watch it with me this time. Um, but I have a feeling she might hate there will be blood as well. But it, I think it's over long. Uh, and I've only seen it twice, I think. I need to revisit it. But I felt similarly that it just feels like it's kind of at a certain point, you're like, well, where is this going? Like, are we tracking the rise of Scientology? And, you know, what what is the specific nature of this relationship between these two characters? And where is that going? By the time he was on the motorcycle, like driving in the desert, I was like, what's going on? What's happening here? <laughs> so that's uh, that's kind of where I landed on the master. Yeah, I think in its best moments, the master is sort of a love story between these two guys who can't be together for various reasons. Um, but it, ne it it quite intentionally never makes it because that, well, homosexuality would be frowned upon in these circumstances. It's like, well, one is married and one is messed up in the head and there's all that. But it's clearly like a love story between these two, these two guys. Um, and I mean, the scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman sings Slow Boat to China is just it will break your heart. Yeah, it's the thing like the master has those moments like that scene where Joaquin Phoenix is like, you know, pacing the room and doing the sort of the the therapy like that's really captivating. But again, but then again, you get scenes like now he's just riding on a motorcycle in the desert. OK. <laughs> yeah, I need to revisit it. It's on Netflix. I don't think many people are taking that opportunity to watch it on Netflix, but um, it is interesting that so many PTA movies are on Netflix. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, with the streaming is that. I mean, what, which ones are on on right now? There will be blood, the master, and Magnolia. Oh, and Magnolia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I get you know. I, I wish it was easier for people to track down Hard Eight because I think Hard Eight yeah. is a pretty strong debut. Yeah, I like that one as well. Um. So yeah, I I mean to 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 bring it back though to There Will Be Blood and something someone asked us about was, uh, do you think capitalism kills religion? <laughs> in this film. And I think this film is obvious about capitalism and religion, but the religion, as I said, depicted in this film is very much a capitalist enterprise. It's really one capitalist enterprise killing off another. And that's not to say like religion died at the turn of the century, but rather who held power in America changed from the local pastor or local preacher, like an Eli figure, to someone like Daniel, this oil man figure who is who understands the lifeblood of what the 20th century will run off of. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. But I also think the strength of the film is that it works so well thematically, but also just makes sense in a character level. Like Daniel would be that petty that he would want to sit there and torture Eli and then beat him to death with a bowling pin. Yes. <laughs> like, well, also the whole, like, I mean... Eli's church is called the Church of the Third Revelation. And then as, as Daniel charges at him at the end, he goes, I'm the third revelation. And what he's saying there is he's like, I am the one that speaks to God because I am the one, I, I control everything now. You are nothing. What you thought you had, what you thought was your pipeline to God, I am that because I control everything now and you control nothing and i'm going to take from you the last thing you have which is your life <laughs> yes and it and it directly follows his son hw abandoning him and yeah. that scene i i found really interesting on rewatch um because it's clear that 
So, you know, Daniel is kind of making clear that H.W. was groomed to be his business partner, and he is telling H.W. that the only reason that he was his son is that uh, it helped the business, helped the business have a kid. Uh, It helps his business to have H.W. helping run his business right now. And the fact that H.W. would want to go to Mexico and start his own business uh, is kind of stabbing him in the back. But you also feel, uh, you know, this degree of failure on some on some account of of Daniel in in being a father to this child that was not actually his child. Well, that's the thing. I mean, to me, what, on this most recent viewing, you know, the scene that strikes me as a huge turning point is when the oil derrick explodes and HW yeah. goes deaf. And in that scene, Daniel has a choice: does he stay with his a scared child who needs him? And there's nothing Daniel can do in that moment. Like, there's nothing, like, he can't stop the oil from, like, you know, it, there's nothing he can do, like, that, that his men couldn't take care of or that anyone would hold against him in that moment. But without any hesitation, Daniel, like, get my kid off of me, get my scared kid off of me. And then he's like, what are you so sad? And he turns to um, Karen Hines. He's like, what are you so sad about? There's an oil of ocean under our feet and only I can get at it. I mean, yeah. like, there, for him, there is no... It's not that I don't think that it's not that I think he doesn't love HW as much as I think that he loves capitalism more. He loves his business more. That was the choice he made. And everything kind of ripples out from there. And then you can see once HW is deaf, he is no longer as useful to a transactional person like Daniel. And so a deaf person, because, you know, he hopes, you know, oh, maybe he can be fixed. Maybe we can solve this. But really, he realizes that, you know, basically my son doesn't work like I wanted him to anymore, so I'm going to send him away. Yeah, yeah. And you can tell he feels a little bad about it, but even bringing him back kind of has ulterior motives because he's trying to show, like, you know, I didn't abandon my boy. Here's my yeah, boy. no, it has ulterior motives, but also it's, again, what can H.W. do for me? H.W., when you see the scene when he lights the cabin on fire— the fire is leading to Henry. He's not yeah. trying to kill his father. He's trying to kill Henry because yeah. Henry, he knows that he's, he read the diary earlier and can see that Henry is lying, but he can't communicate that to his father. Um, but he was right. And then after Daniel learned that Henry was a grifter, then he's like, oh, well, maybe HW, you know, I need HW back because HW is looking out for my interests. Yeah. Which is so fucked up. It's so like this little boy is trying to look out for his father's interest when it should be the other way around. Well, and it also reeks of like he needs a right hand man. He needs someone he can trust. He mm-hmm. needs someone to be there with him in his business that he can trust intrinsically. Um, and that being not like blood exactly because HW isn't his blood, but someone that he's groomed. Right. For him, family is more of a transactional kind of not just transactional but like a good defense in terms of like who can be trusted and so i mean once he he sends hw away he immediately is like well i can i'll I'll work with henry now like he doesn't have friends and he doesn't have family he has employees and that's the closest you can get to be in his that's the closest you can be in his sphere and i think that's telling that you know by the end of the film uh, uh daniel and eli are technically brothers they're they're are not brothers, but they're they're family because yeah. he's married um because uh, his son is married uh Mary. Yeah, so, to, to Eli's yeah, sister. So they're in-laws. 
But, you know, and that's why and Eli is literally shouting. I'm like, we're family. <laughs> <laughs> he throws bowling pins at him. But, like, he has to kill that, that those, like, those, those connections mean nothing to him anymore. Because by the end of it, like, that's sort of, like, the cruel, the cruel joke at the end for a film that is very funny. By the end of the film, Daniel has everything. Like, yeah. he has all the money that he could ever want. He he's, has that big house. And what does he do? He spends his days getting drunk and shooting at nothing in, the, in his own house. <laughs> yeah. Like, he's pathetic. He's a pathetic creature. And you can sort of see that sort of little spark come back to him uh, when Eli comes in, because he now has a competitor. He now has someone, you know, that thing about capitalism, as as rendered in There Will Be Blood, is it needs competition. And if it dominates, it's like a fire that is snuffed out. So it has to consume. And, and Eli is sort of that last burst, and that's why he says, I'm finished. Yeah. He's like, I got him. <laughs> There's nothing left for me. There's yeah, yeah. My play toy is done. Uh, you know, I'm done toying with my son because my son left me. Yeah, I'm, 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 com- I'm, I've conquered the world and I'm completely alone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's the other thing is that PTA has a joke at the end. <laughs> the song, the music. Yeah. Music comes in. It's triumphant. Yeah. So it's. It, I mean, I just think the film works on every level, and it's just it's a it's a joy to watch. Um, I've seen it. Did you show it to her? I showed it to her a few years ago. Yeah, and she um, she liked it. Um, but you know, as I said, on a first viewing, it's a film that's a little hard to process. So yeah, I sort of like I I sort of explained my my view on how it works because by that I I I've lost count of how many times I've seen it now. But yeah, again, it's it's a if if I had one criticism of There Will Be Blood is that it's a film that requires two viewings to start to make sense of it. Because if you just go through it once, you're kind of like, what did I just watch? And that's true of most PTA films. I mean, even Phantom Thread, if I hadn't been primed that it was a comedy, that it was supposed to be funny, I'm not sure that I would have picked... I'm not, I don't know how long it would have taken me to pick up on it. Right. If I hadn't, like, seen those reactions of people saying... Which is why I need to rewatch Inherent Vice. Yeah. Yeah, because if you go in Inherent Vice with nothing, you're like... Well, I went into Inherent Vice being like, oh, this is supposed to be funny, because that's what I had heard out of New York Film Festival. Yeah. And I was kind of being like, meh, meh. <laughs> <laughs> there are moments like um, uh, Josh Brolin eating the banana. The chocolate banana. <laughs> <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix is puzzled face, just like, just watching him <laughs> suck on it for like, literally, it's got to be like 45 seconds or something. He yeah. He eats this chocolate banana. <laughs> that movie is so silly. Yeah. Oh, that PTA, what a jokester. I did enjoy, uh, you know, in There Will Be Blood, you have cameos from a bunch of, like, comedy uh, actors in it. Um, Jim Downey, I think, who's, like, an SNL veteran, uh, yeah. is in there. Um, I'll like, that Paul F. Tompkins Kevin is in it. Uh, Kevin J. O'Connor, like, who had, like, previously, like, been, like, comic relief and, like, deep rising in The Mummy. Yeah. Is Henry. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I suppose it makes sense that he's he's married to Maya Rudolph. I mean, uh, you know, and he spent, I think, an entire season at SNL just, like, guest directing, like, the, like, digital shorts and stuff like that. Um, not the, this is before The Lonely Island, so, like, pre-recorded material. Right. But he was just so fascinated by SNL that he spent, I think, almost an entire season just hanging out there and directing stuff. And now he's like directing every single music video that the band Heim puts out, um, just for fun. Did he also like, direct like a Fiona Apple music video a few years back? Or 
he directed, I think he directed Criminal, but I may be wrong. Oh, I think I'm wrong. I think that's Mark Romanek, maybe. I think that's Mark Romanek, but I forget. I feel like he directed something. For, anyway, he stays, sure he, he stays busy. He stays very busy. He was supposed to be busy right now. He was in pre-production about to start filming a new film, uh, Coming of Age Story, before, um, you know, the pandemic happened. Before the pandemic. Who was the star in that? Who was the lead actor? Had they found a lead? I don't know if we had heard that a lead was there. Um, oh, that Timothy Chalamet son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, the Fiona Apple videos he directed were limp and paper bag. Okay. Um, so he did. I wasn't wrong. He did direct some. Correct. Yes. Okay. He directed a couple of Radiohead music videos as well. Um, I think his new film was going to be like a cast of unknowns, um, mm. as I remember it. Um, but I could be wrong. Probably that Tim- Timothy Chalamet son of a bitch, as you said. <laughs> <laughs> Very correct. Uh, let me see. We got some questions. Um, let's see. Does Daniel hate himself? And that's why he hates Paul, because he sees himself in Paul. When he's finished, is he already looking in the mirror at what a greedy, empty, lonely man he's become? No. Yeah, I think I it's think more. Daniel loves. I don't think Daniel loves or hates himself. I think he's just sort of a machine. And I think he has some very thin human relationships, but Daniel like just hates, he's by his own admission, hates people. And I don't think he loves or hates himself or even really considers that. Um, I think what he sees in Eli, as I said, is a competitor, a business competitor um, and a rival, but not himself. Yeah. Um, Is anybody really good in this movie? By that, I mean, is anyone a good person? I think H.W. Mary seems nice. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think the two protagonists, Eli and Daniel, are good people. Yeah. Um, but I also don't think, you know, I think that the binary of good and good or bad can kind of sometimes render characters simplistic. Um, I don't find Daniel Plainview to be a good guy, but I find him endlessly ca- compelling and captivating. And yeah. that's what you want from a protagonist is someone who's interesting. Yeah. And there, I mean, as we've discussed, there exists the possibility to empathize with Daniel at certain points in the film. He is not a, an entirely uh, cold character. He's no. not someone who's just so removed from reality that it's just like, well, there's a, and that's kind of what I was talking about with Gangs of New York. Like not again, not that it's a bad performance, but he's delivering, you know, an antagonistic performance. Uh, you know, he's the bad guy. Um, and it's an interesting performance, and I think it's an interesting character as a foil to Leonardo DiCaprio in that film. But uh, just the sheer complexity of Daniel Plainview, I think, is just a, it's a treat to get him to watch Daniel Day-Lewis kind of chew on that. Yeah. So those are the questions that those are the main right. questions. Well, I have one more question for you. All right. So what happens if you have a milkshake? And I have a milkshake, but I also have a straw. Drainage! Drainage, boy! <laughs> you just blew out the eardrums of everyone listening. <laughs> well. It's been uh, fun. 200-something episodes later. Um, all right, so you want to move on to Recently Watched, then? Let's do it. All right, what have you seen lately? Um, so recently I watched Spy, 
the Paul Feig film, the comedy with Melissa McCarthy, I think 2017 is when it came out. Um, and I've seen this movie a couple times before, and I contend that it's one of the more rewatchable comedies of, of the last decade. Uh, it's just so endlessly funny and silly, but Feig is also kind of taking it seriously as a spy movie. Like, I think he made clear that he really wanted to direct like a Bond movie, and this was, you know, his his chance to direct like a Bond movie. Um, and so it takes kind of the the spycraft seriously. Like there is a compelling mystery at the center of the story, but you also like that ensemble cast is insane. Like Melissa McCarthy is so funny. Jason Statham, I think, has never been used better. Um, it's just this so extreme. <laughs> I like when Melissa McCarthy says, and also your gun is uh, poking out the back unless you're so extreme that you have a second dick on the back of your hips. Um and you know Rose Byrne, I think, is just an assassin in that film. She's she's also hilarious. It just like that movie brings me so much joy, and especially at a time right now, uh, movies like that are are um, definitely good to watch. So I would highly suggest revisiting Spy. I think it's on demand uh, through like FX movies or something like that. Um, also, I think you can buy it for like six dollars on Blu-ray. It's, it's well worth owning. Yeah, it's well worth owning because, uh, as I said, it holds up. I've seen it a number of times now, and it's it's just always funny. So, I think uh, I think that's one of Feek's best films. I enjoy it. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I really like I really like Spy. Um, for me, I recently watched Crimson Tide for an article I'm working on uh, for because the film uh, will have its 25th anniversary uh, next week, um, and so I revisited Crimson Tide, which I just think is. I know some will say it's blasphemy to say it's Tony Scott's best film when he also directed like True Romance, but man, do I love Crimson Tide. I mean, I'm, but I'm like a submarine movie fanatic, as I said before <laughs> on this true. podcast. I'm true. I'm always like, hey, guys, want to talk about submarine movies? And everyone's like, no. Are you a middle-aged father of two? Like, <laughs> um, But I love submarine movies, and I think Crimson Tide is uh, one of the best in the genre. Um, for those who don't know, the the plot is that Denzel Washington is the executive officer to a captain played by Gene Hackman. They get a, a coded message saying that that they have to launch nukes, and then they get a second message, but that message is interrupted when they're attacked. So they don't know what the second message says, if it's confirming the attack or to call off the attack. And that leads to uh, a showdown between Washington and Hackman over what's the right thing to do in that circumstance, whether to launch the nukes or not. Um, and it's just like, it's just pure tension. I was watching on this most recent viewing. I'm like, what a gift that we got to see Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman square off against each other. And I realized like Gene, I mean, what, Welcome to Mooseport came out in what, 2003? And that was his last movie, Something I think? Something like that, yeah. Gene Hackman, by the way, Gene Hackman's alive. For those who don't know, <laughs> Gene Hackman's still alive. He just retired. And it's wild to me now, like there's probably like an entire generation of moviegoers that don't know, like, unless you've watched older films, Gene Hackman is like one of the greatest actors who've ever, who's ever lived. <laughs> like yeah. Gene Hackman is an amazing actor. He's phenomenal. And he's been in so many good films like Bonnie and Clyde, The Conversation. Uh, I don't love The French Connection, but I think he's great in it. Uh, Unforgiven. He's so free. And this, he's so freaking good. And he's just like, it's like watching him square off against Denzel um is just magnificent and it's kind of bums me out like oh man there's this great actor who's still alive gene hackman and it makes me wish like someone would pull him out of retirement like a pesci like pesci was basically yeah. in retirement until the irishman and then it was like irishman's a great performance for pesci and i was like let's 
Can someone get Hackman out of retirement? Just one more, man. Let's one more film. <laughs> um, I would love to see it. But I, it seems I, like he's going the way of Jack Nicholson, where it's just kind of like, I don't have to, and I don't want to. And, you know, you have to stay in shape to be in movies like that. And I think they're like, ah, screw it. Like, I don't really want to. No, and look, he doesn't owe anyone anything, especially like when you're like at a Gene Hackman or, or Jack Nicholson level where your legacy is secure. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's going to be like, oh, I don't know. Like, they're legends. They've, they've won Oscars. They've been in some of the greatest films of all time. It's fine. Yeah. I was like really watching Crimson Tide. I'm like, man, I miss Gene Hackman. Uh, but Crimson Tide is just an awesome movie. It's, it's a great, uh, just a great thriller. Uh, and I think one of the, the stronger entries in the submarine genre. And Tarantino wrote on that, right? He did write on that, and you can spot his dialogue immediately. <laughs> immediately. Have you seen Crimson Tide? Yeah, it's been a long time. Like, there are scenes where like characters are arguing about Silver Surfer, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. So uh, Crimson Tide is great. Look for my article on that uh, next week. All right. Uh, if you want to keep with those podcasts, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Uh, we asked you what should be our topic of discussion next week. You all voted, and the winner was Back to the Future. So we will be discussing Back to the Future. We'll probably discuss the sequels as well. Who knows? Um, probably talk a little bit about Zemeckis. Uh, but it'll be a fun conversation. So Back to the Future is on Netflix right now. You can check it out. And that's what we'll be talking about on next week's episode. See you then. It's that little Chico Pitbull, Mr. 305, but it said Mr. Worldwide. You already know what it is. Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Subscribe today. Now, part of the things that we're doing over here at Negative to Positive is encouraging people to change their lives, change the things that are within their power. I want to thank our good friends at KFC for helping me bring this to you. Feed your whole crew with KFC. Let's go. I can get the KFC bucket of chicken, and you know that's fire. Now, Babu, you know that you could get that mac and cheese, that mashed potato, gravy, those biscuits. Now, that's that's trouble right there. That is fire right there. You know, on Negative to Positive, we're always talking about striving and achievement. And, and the Colonel Sanders story is, is a story that inspired me since I was 10 years old. Look how life comes full circle. Now I'm talking about Colonel Sanders and Kentucky Fried Chicken and how much I love it. <laughs> Listen to my new podcast from Negative to Positive. Check out the vodcast. Subscribe today. Apple Podcast. Podcast One. Spotify. People notice a healthy smile, but maybe you have tooth sensitivity, bleeding gums, or acid-weakened enamel. Sensodyne, Paradontax, and Pronamel are trusted specialty toothpastes created to help improve your oral health. For tooth sensitivity, choose Sensodyne. Bleeding gums, get Paradontax. For acid-weakened enamel, Pronamel is the toothpaste for you. Sensodyne, Paradontax, and Pronamel. Trusted specialty toothpaste to help bring home your healthy smile. Visit Ibotta to earn cash back.